Also, if you uh, need a communion cup, if you missed that on the way in, uh, they're available uh, on the table or in the table in the foyer at the back. Just as a reminder, this is our uh, month of hospitality, and so I want to uh, keep you thinking about that, who it is that you can make an effort to spend time with in the uh, throughout this month and uh, build a bridge, get to know someone a little bit better that you don't already. And uh, last, last week, obviously, I had a lot of suggestions for ways of doing that. It could be anything from having somebody in your home to just going for a walk in a park and saying, hey, if you've got half an hour, how about we meet here and, and go for a walk together? Um, and, and so it's just a, a way of saying, yeah, I can do that. I can get together with another uh, brother and sister in Christ and uh, just spend a little bit of time uh, in a way that I don't usually and overcoming some of the barriers because we believe that uh, God is a remover of barriers between people and between people and him. And so uh, we get to participate in that work. And, and it's real easy for us subconsciously to fall into spaces where we're comfortable. And, uh, and those spaces are then separated from other people's comfortable spaces. And so this is just a, a little bit of intentionality to say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We, we want to value everybody and, and love everybody, uh, particularly those you know, here in our church family. So, month of hospitality. All right, uh, let's, I'm, I'm still in between sermon series, but uh, this is like a prelude today. I'll get into that in just a moment. But have you ever been in a uh, middle of a movie? You're watching it on television, it's a TV show. And then somebody comes and sits down next to you. And they start asking you all these questions about who's that? Why'd they do that? What does that mean? And, and you're like, this is so annoying. If you're that interested in it, you could have been here half an hour ago, right? <clears throat> uh, it, it could be a class. You know, there's always that person that walks into class late and they're whispering, going, what did I miss? It's like, yeah, like, go back and watch the recording. Because <laughs> if I tell you now, I'm going to miss what's happening now, right? Uh, there's all sorts of settings where if the, the person who is late comes in and interrupts for the person who was on time. And... Uh, and, and so they're, they're just, you spend all your time trying to catch them up. And yet I think we often read the Bible like this. Okay? That, that very often we, we come into the Bible halfway and we say, well, what's going on? Who's this? And, and I think even worse, what we do is we come in halfway and then we think we know what's going on, right? How many books would you pick up and just read the second half of it and go, oh yeah, I know all about that book, right? We, we, I don't know if I've been reading some mystery 
series, you know, Save the World from Nuclear Holocaust sort of books lately. And uh, very often they're um, series, right? And, uh, and so if you pick up in the, the third book in the series without reading the first two, then oftentimes there's references to things that happened and you miss them. Uh, I have this thing about movies, right? I'm not going to watch a sequel unless I've seen the first one, all right? Now, maybe that's just me and I've missed out on some movies. Like, I got behind with the Marvel superheroes movies and I can't catch up. There's too many of them. I just gave up. I said, okay, Marvel, I can't do it. And so... Maybe, you know, some of you aren't quite as pedantic about that as I am, and that's okay. But we we get the idea. And so when we come to the Bible, sometimes we want to pick up in the middle, and we think we can determine what's going on. And so what do I mean by pick up in the middle? Most people I know enjoy reading the New Testament more than the Old Testament. Um, one of the things I've never heard someone come up and say to me is, Peter, we haven't had a series out of the Old Testament for a little while. But if I do a period of time, a series, a class or something from the Old Testament, it's inevitable that someone will come up to me and say, you know, we haven't done anything from the New Testament for a while. <laughs> That'd be nice. right?" And, and so there, there is something about that. I'm not just picking on Lawson Road. I've seen that at other churches and other places I've been to. But when we focus predominantly on the New Testament, it's like we've joined the movie in the middle. And there are going to be things that we don't understand. So next week, we're going to start a a new sermon series on the book of Galatians. Um... I think we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I plan to read, well, or have read, or work out the details, the text of Galatians. That'll pretty much be the sermon next week, is just reading the book of Galatians. Okay? That was how it was delivered uh, when it was first written. And so I thought we'd do something a bit different uh, next Sunday. And so, yes... Galatians is a New Testament book, right? After me saying we start in the middle. But together with Hebrews, Galatians is often used to um, create a hard break between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so before we jump into that series, I want to take this week just to establish how important the Old Testament is to our faith. Because if we don't come at the book of Hebrews or come at Galatians uh, or, or other passages, but if we don't approach them with the mindset that the Old Testament is valuable to us, then we might walk away thinking we don't need the Old Testament. And, and so I don't want to I don't want to go there and we'll get into that more when we you'll say, well, I, what's he talking about? But we'll get into that more when we get into the book of Galatians. But I want us to just have this mindset that the Old Testament, nothing that Hebrews or Galatians says, undermines the fact that the Old Testament is valuable to us. And so, 
I, I, I understand some of the reluctance to, um, or, or the difficulties in relating to the Old Testament. A lot of our culture is influenced by the Greco-Roman culture of 2,000 years ago plus. Um, what's the upper chamber of the U.S. Congress called? Senate, right? The first Senate was where? In Rome, in the time of Jesus, or before that. And, and so that's just a, a very little example of how something from that time... But if we start going back before that, and we say, oh, how influenced are we by the Assyrians uh, or the Persians? And, and there probably are some, but it's less. We relate less to them than we do to the Greeks and the Romans. Um, the whole idea of learning Latin, okay? I know my, my dad used to tell me how it was... you know. He went to a state school, but learning Latin was mandatory. You know, it was just part of the curriculum. That was part of culture. Why'd you learn that? Because the Romans spoke and wrote Latin. They hadn't done it for centuries. But because there are all these works of literature and monuments and legal terms and medical terms and all that stuff out there, then it was important, they thought back then, for people to learn Latin. You'll never speak it but maybe you'll, you'll read it, or maybe it'll help you understand where our English words come from, that kind of thing. And, and so we see this influence from that culture, and so we relate to it a little bit more, I think. We relate to what's going on in a way that we don't to the older civilizations, particularly when we think of the more nomadic civilizations. Think of Abraham. Where did Abraham live? Well, he lived in here, and he lived there, and he traveled to here, and he was near Sodom and Gomorrah, he was down in Egypt, he was back up to... He was all over the place. And unless you've got an RV and you're on the road all the time, you, we don't really relate to that, do we, most of us? And yet that was not just Abraham, that was large swathes of society were like that. And so it's, there's just this gap that we struggle to bridge, I think, with the Old Testament. But it's important to us. I have six points. Okay. We'll be out by... We'll finish sometime. Okay, um, first one here. Jesus and the Old Testament story. I, I've taken these from a book. They're not my points. And so what this first one is, is, is why is the Old Testament important for us. It's that Jesus plugs into a story that already exists. And the, um, the Gospels are really clear about this. How does Matthew, how does the Gospel of Matthew begin? Genealogy, right? When was the last time you, you read that? Ever had a memory verse out of the first chapter of Matthew there? Right? When you're going through Sunday school. Uh, no. And we say, why, do we, why does this matter? It matters because what it does is it puts Jesus in a continuity all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Adam and to God. Okay? Uh, so whether it be the, the first chapter of Matthew, whether it be the third chapter of Luke, 
they both do the same thing. And they say, Jesus doesn't pop up out of thin air. Jesus is part of a story. Jesus may be the centerpiece of the story, the climax of the story. And I know we're told that he's the Alpha and the Omega, but the human Jesus is not the beginning or the end of the story. Okay? The human Jesus is there in the middle. And yes, I know Jesus, part of the Godhead, was there at creation and will be there at the end. But, but as far as our human chronology goes, the beginning happened and all for a thing that happened in between leading up to Jesus. And then from Jesus, everything changes and it now leads towards the return of him ultimately. But he's not here living in this moment. Now, Jesus is there as a part of the story of human history. He's not in a vacuum. He doesn't just arise from nowhere. And so this, this idea of the genealogy is very important to saying not only is he human, but he has a place in the story. He has a family, right? Yes, he's God come to earth in the flesh, but he has a family. He has a lineage. We can trace his family tree. He belongs. Um, and so that's just, you know, if we didn't have the Old Testament and this guy called Jesus just walks on the scene, I think we'd still be asking, who are you? Huh? Who are you? But he's got this connection. He's got this legacy this, uh, that, he's been, that is part of his, part of his story. Uh, and so we, we need to, hopefully, you know, the last sermon of the series I did, talk about the gospel. We started at creation, right? That, that it, God's influence and involvement in the world has been going on for centuries before Jesus. And uh, Jesus then adds to that. Okay. The second point here, Jesus and the Old Testament promise. I won't spend a lot of time here either because I had the sermon on fulfillment in that last sermon series. Um, but if we go to Matthew 2, so it was, I'm sort of using Matthew as a, a little bit of an outline here. So Matthew 1 has the genealogy. If we go to Matthew 2, um, and, and it's too long for us to read, but there are these events that take place. It's just talking about the birth of Jesus. And... The wise men come, or the, the magi come, and they ask Herod, where is he? And they go, and where do they, where do they, how do they determine where the king is going to be born? They look in the Old Testament. <laughs> and they say, hey, you should go check out Bethlehem. Right? A lot of people think there'll be a king born there. And so they're right. So they base that on Isaiah 7.14. Now, then as we go down... Uh, three more times in this chapter, Matthew tells us, he uses the words fulfilled. Okay? Fulfilled, fulfilled. And, um, and so that becomes important. Now, I want us to think about these, this idea of prophecy that's fulfilled because not all of these references were predictions other than the born in Bethlehem. That was really the only prediction. And so sometimes when we think of prophecy... I suspect that we often think of it in terms of like a parlor trick. Okay? I know we don't have parlors anymore, but you know, we think of it in terms of a trick. And, and it's like, hey, I'm going to predict the future, and then I'll impress you. Okay? Curtis, you're going to have a car accident on the way home. 
Okay. Um, now, <laughs> if, if Curtis has a car accident on the way home, you're going to be impressed with me. You say, Peter, how'd you know? You're know, like, I arranged it. No, I knew the future. Right? And, and you go, that's impressive. But, but what we find with uh, the, these prophecies is they're not so much prophecies in, in terms of predictions that uh, are intended to impress people. I think a better way to think of them is as promises. That God isn't just predicting that there'll be a Messiah born, a king born in Bethlehem. He is promising that there will be a Messiah born in Bethlehem. That, that, that he is promising that when the children are, are slaughtered by Herod, that there will be a place to escape to Egypt. That, that just as God brought his people out of Egypt, uh, that, that he will also bring his king, bring his Messiah out of Egypt also. Um, and so we can go down through and we can see all these, often we talk about the fulfillment of prophecies uh, related to Jesus, but I think it's a really good way to think of it as a fulfillment of promises that God is saying to Israel and saying to his people that, that this is what I'm going to do for you. This is who I'm going to send to you. And, and, and so it's based on a relationship not a magician demonstrating his skills of fortune-telling. And so Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. And certainly it adds to his credibility, it adds to God's credibility, and, and it demonstrates God keeping his promises. Third one I have here. Is Jesus and his Old Testament identity. If we were to um, go through, I think it's Mark, in Mark's gospel, the first few chapters are filled with questions and people asking, is, who is this guy? Isn't this Joseph's son? Who is he? How did he do that? Uh, by what authority did he do that? And we see all these questions about who is Jesus. Well, at his baptism, and we find this in... in uh, Matthew chapter 3, um, there's a voice that comes from heaven. And it says this um, in, in verse 16, Jesus had been baptized just as he came up from the water. Suddenly the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So we know those words. Do we... Let, let me show you, though, where those words come from and how the Old Testament can help us understand them a little better. The first one, this is my son. That sounds like a statement of fact, doesn't it? But if we go back to Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, Psalm chapter 2 is a, a psalm of coronation. It was probably uh, directed to David, and it would be something that was directed to him as king, maybe when he was made king. But there is this statement that is given to David as part of this process, and God says to David, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Okay. That's part of the king of Israel. Sit on the throne of Israel, and you become God's son, and he becomes your father. And so I want you to think now when God says to Jesus at his baptism, this is my son, you are my son. 
It could just be a statement of fact. But it could also be saying, you're a king. You're a king. You're a descendant of David. We've already established that back in Matthew chapter 1. And now by saying, you are my son. You're a king. And today, I'm your father. Okay. The second line here says, whom I love. Now, this may be a little bit of a stretch, but in Genesis 22 and verse 2, this is the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham takes Isaac. God tells him, he says, take your son, your only son, your begotten son, whom you love. Your son, your only son, whom you love. What's he to do with him? Sacrifice him. It's a testing, obviously. Isaac is not sacrificed. But here, this is my son, the king, whom I love. And I'm willing to sacrifice. With him I am well pleased. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, my chosen one. In whom I delights. We're going to come back to Isaiah 42, but it's a, a one of the sermons, sermon, uh, one of the servant psalms. And so, my chosen one, you think, oh, I'm chosen to serve, is what the ultimately that's going to lead. Psalm 40, uh, Isaiah 42 leads to Isaiah 53. And so, the servant leads to the cross. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. But each of those phrases is an echo from the Old Testament that it gives Jesus an identity, an identity as a king, an identity as a sacrifice, and an identity as a servant. This is what you're going to be doing, Jesus. The Old Testament also gives Jesus a mission. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Jesus himself speaking. So this idea of servant, I just mentioned it. Um, you can turn to Isaiah 42 if you want. It's the first of these four what we call servant songs. And uh, they're, they're descriptions of God's anointed in the role of a servant. And it's a little unexpected in that context because it's talking about God reestablishing his people. They have always thought of God's anointed as being a king or a priest or a prophet, someone prominent. And now, here in Isaiah, as he's sort of wrapping up towards the end of his book and, and he's painting this picture, he says there's going to be this uh, servant character, this anointed servant. And uh, the, the person is to serve the nations, to serve um, other people. And, and as I said, ultimately we get to Isaiah 53, which we know so well as part of uh, those the culmination of those sermon, uh, servant songs. But I want to um, 
Have a look at Matthew chapter 12. One of the things I think we often overlook as we read the New Testament is we don't pay a lot of attention to the quotes from the Old Testament. It's always interesting to me how often we'll say, oh, well, Jesus said this. But what actually Jesus said is he's quoting what someone else said. Right? So we don't say, we're not in the habit of saying, well, Isaiah said this. Because Jesus quoted him, we may not even realize it's a quote, and so we say, Jesus said this, or Paul wrote this, or whatever book of the Bible it is. But it was actually something from earlier. So love your neighbor as yourself, right? The first and greatest commandment doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from the books of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind. doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from the books of the law, thousands of years before. And so we, we think, oh, Jesus had this wonderful insight. Now, maybe in saying these are the first or the second, maybe he adds something to that conversation, but the actual command, the actual idea is already there. And so when we look here at Matthew chapter 12, I think it, uh, we often perhaps may overlook what is, is being said. It's sort of not a very exciting passage for us necessarily. Um, I left my NIV at home, so I'm reading from an NRSV. It may be a little different, um, but I'm going to start reading in verse um, 15 of Matthew 12. When Jesus became aware of this, he departed. Many crowds followed him, and he cured all of them. And he ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what, he ha what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, okay, servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Okay. That's a fairly long quote as quotes go in the New Testament. And, and I've got to be honest, I'm not super familiar with it, right? <laughs> it's the quote from the first few verses of Isaiah 42, the servant, the first servant song. And, and in that sense, it's sort of setting an agenda. What is it? We're talking about Jesus and his Old Testament mission. What does he describe here as his mission? His mission is to proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Okay? And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. This is the servant. This is what Israel's responsibility had been in the past, that they were to be a light to the world, something that they'd not followed through on. And so the servant, who is Jesus, is coming to do that. And we could go through and we could say, yeah, often we look at Jesus washing the feet, right, as that servant mentality. But Jesus served in so many ways. He served just by making the gospel available 
to us. Jesus' mission comes from the Old Testament. Jesus didn't write himself a new mission statement. Okay? The idea of the cross, perhaps, the specifics, but, but his purpose was what it had always been in the Old Testament. That, that he, he would read it and he would say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. That's who I'm going to be. That's what I'm going to fulfill. In our passage that was read to us earlier from uh, Luke uh, 24, right? And, and the reason I had that read is because at the end of it, you know, it's the resurrection. Jesus has just appealed, appeared to his disciples and uh, in, the, in the upper room and they're all in shock. And he says, look, ghosts don't eat food because everybody knows ghosts don't have digestive systems. And he says, give me some food to eat. And so they, they do and he convinces them. And then look at what he does. What is it that he wants to teach them? He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Old Testament scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You see, the last words of Jesus to his disciples find their origin in the first words of God that predate Jesus. They're found in the Old Testament. And, and the commission that he gives his disciples is to take what is in the Old Testament to the world. That is our mission. Jesus and his Old Testament values okay Matthew chapter 4 we've sort of moved from the genealogy we've moved to Jesus birth we've moved to his baptism in Matthew chapter 4 we have immediately the temptation of Jesus Jesus goes out in the wilderness and, and perhaps you've heard before how when he is tempted by Satan he responds by quoting the Old Testament Okay, and, and the thought is that Jesus has been meditating on that area of Scripture because they all come from within a few chapters of Deuteronomy. And, and so he's been out in the wilderness for 40 days. You know, he hasn't just been counting the stars and sleeping during the day, right? He's been meditating on Scripture. We've seen in our Wednesday night uh, men's class how Jewish boys of that time were trained, they memorized the first, by the time they're like 12, memorized the first five books of the Bible. So Jesus would be able to meditate on the first five books of the Bible. He didn't have to carry big scrolls with him. He had it memorized. Okay? And so he quotes his first one, you'll see as we read this, um, from Deuteronomy chapter 8. But I want you to look at this passage as a whole and think how, if Jesus read this, how would this have impacted him while he's coming to the end of his 40 days of fasting. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, 40 days, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, 
which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, your feet did not swell during these 40 days, years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. What did God tell Jesus at his baptism? You're my son. As a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you? Yes, I'm his son. Uh, God, just uh, looking at this dad, and uh, as we go down through here, uh, yeah, you gave those guys manna. 40 days, I'm not seeing any. And this guy over here wants me to turn them in rocks into stones into bread. <laughs> so let me get this right, God. I'm your son. I'm in the wilderness. I'm hungry. And you gave them bread. What am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to think? What's our relationship really like here? Words are cheap, Father. Um, that's a temptation, isn't it? That's a temptation about your relationship with God. That's your temptation if what you think is true is really true. And then there's somebody there offering you a way out. Offering your way to quench your hunger. And so... But Jesus, out of all of that, didn't dwell on those parts of the text. What did he focus on? He says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but the word of God. And so I'm not going to give up the word of God that just said that I am his son in order to get bread. Right? The word of God takes precedence over the bread, even after 40 days of no bread. And so Jesus' values are ingrained in him from the Old Testament. He's Jewish. The law is memorized in his head. It makes him who he is. Point number six. Jesus and his Old Testament God. This one, I think, is a bit of a misnomer. I didn't come up with the, the names. But Matthew chapter 17, we're jumping forward a few chapters here. Matthew chapter 17 tells of the uh, transfiguration. Jesus goes up a mountain with James, uh, John, and Peter, and he gets transformed, transfigured. Okay? And he glows. There's a voice from heaven. There's Elijah and Moses standing there talking to him. And we don't know anything about the Old Testament. We've got no idea who those two guys are or what's happening. And this is just blowing our minds, right? But if we know what the Old Testament is, we have some idea who Elijah and Moses are. We have some idea, maybe, that we've gone up a mountain. Is this like when Moses was on top of Mount Sinai with God? You know, what's, what's the going on here what's the the correlation and then as they come back down the mountain and um, in verse 10 Jesus sort of wants to explain to them he says the disciples asked him why do the um, oh sorry verse 9 he says tell no one about the vision until after the son of man has been raised from the dead the disciples ask why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first he replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore 
all things. So there's this prophecy in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 that says, God says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. There's going to be Elijah and then God is going to come, okay, is what this verse says. And, and so they're asking Jesus about this and and we don't have to get into what prompted them right at this point, maybe because they saw Elijah in, in the person. Um, but Jesus then says in verse 12, I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But they did, um, they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was talking about John the Baptist. So what he's saying is, here's Elijah, Elijah's going to come before God does. Here's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah. Who came after John the Baptist? God. I mean, Jesus. I mean, God. I mean, Jesus. Right? God, Jesus. And so we have this prophecy here about how God is going to come and, and Jesus says yeah and if we don't understand what's being said you know a lot of people will say Jesus never claimed to be God and Jesus never said the words I am God it's true but what does he say John the Baptist was Elijah after Elijah comes God will come hey guys I'm here and, and, you know, I was just up on the mountain there. You saw how I glowed. You heard the voice from heaven. You saw Elijah and Moses there with me. Right? That's what's happening. That's who I am. And, and so the Old Testament validates and confirms the deity of Jesus in this way. And one last verse as we close here. Deuteronomy 4.39 says, Acknowledge and take heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven and on earth below. There is no other. Okay? There's only one God and he is in heaven and the earth below. And then we might flip over to Matthew chapter 28. Again, Jesus' last words in Matthew's gospel to, um, to his disciples. And he says to them, All authority in Heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth. But hang on, there is only one Lord. There is only one God. There is no other. All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. There's a, a statement there about who Jesus is. And he says, therefore... Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So much of what we think of as New Testament teaching, New Testament ideas, comes from the Old Testament. And so my purpose this morning, it's a little unusual, I understand, but I just want, hope that we each walk away and say, I want to understand the Old Testament better. 
And, and so if we have a Bible class, I don't know when we would ever do this, but you know, let's say we have a Bible class and it's on Ezekiel and Daniel and you know, some of the harder books of the Old Testament, maybe to understand, then we say, you know what, I really want to understand this because Jesus understood it. Because these were important to Jesus. They were his Bible. That was all that he had. That was all the disciples had. And they found so much truth, so much inspiration in those books. They learned so much about God and God's will for his people and God's treatment for his people, God's love for the world. And they say, I want to know those books. Right? I don't want to just stick to the Sunday school stories. I want to know God through the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is the lens through which we need to read the New Testament. And if we focus solely on the New Testament, it's like we've come in halfway through the movie and we don't know as much as we think we know. So be humble as we read Scripture and uh, read all of Scripture. Value all of it. Because God has always loved us and it is all good news.